Today we begin a three-week journey through Hebrews 10, and we're going to look specifically at our mission statement as the fellowship. We're going to look at what we exist for and why we exist as a people, and we're calling this series Gather, Grow, and Go. We'll take each Sunday to discuss one of those words, and today we're talking about gathering. I think it's important that we put the mission statement on the screen for you, though, so you can look at it. It says, doing whatever it takes to develop disciples of Jesus Christ who gather, grow, and go. It's also in the serve pamphlet you received when you came in, and we ask you to take that with you. The reason that's important is because we want you thinking on that, focusing on that, fellowshipping on that as you uh, come around as a family or as you mentally just kind of prepare yourself for why I go to the fellowship, why I call it home, what is the fellowship about, and what is it we're seeking to do. I'm going to propose to you as we talk about gathering today that it, it, may be, it may be that we've been in proximity to others, but we have not in fact gathered. In fact, that happens quite a bit. Let me, let me give an example. How many of you are Titans fans? Three of us, okay, all right. Well, the three in this room who are Titans fans, <clears throat> I normally would use college football, but I just figured I would take a shot. It's Nashville, we could all try to maybe agree on that. But we, let's say we go to the Titans stadium in our blue and our navy and our red, and we go to the Titans stadium. Why are we going to the Titans stadium? Why do we go there? We're Right, we're going to support the Titans with one, one focus, one singular effort, and that is to cheer them on in hopes that they will win, right? That's kind of the hope. The hope is that we go there to witness the Titans play in hopes that they will win. When I get to the game, though, I may have things happen, like things like I desire, I'm, I'm hungry, so I desire a hot dog. That means that I will break formation in the stadium to go find myself individually a hot dog because I have to feed my individual hunger, right? Or has anyone ever been in a stadium like that at the top of the nosebleed section and found your, your bladder is smaller than you thought? And so you realize I need to go to the restroom. And when you go to the restroom, you find that your intention for going to the restroom is way different than why you came to the stadium. In the stadium, everyone is eyes on the field. Uh, if we score, everyone's slapping five, cheering. That doesn't happen in the bathroom. Or I hope it doesn't. You know, that's not going to happen in that place. And, you know, some people are into that communal restroom visit. I don't think the rural majority are. When we go to the restroom, in a public restroom, it is eyes down. Don't look anyone in the eye. Get in, get out. Check it off the list, right? Do what you need to do. And I say that to say this. You immediately go back to your seat to continue gathering for the purpose that you gathered. You may be in close proximity to people like a restroom. It may even be an intimate environment, doing intimate things. But it doesn't mean that you have in fact gathered. You don't have a singular corporate purpose. You have an individual purpose for being there. Hello? Make sense? And so I, I propose that in life we can and often, nothing wrong with it, be proximate to others but still never gather. We can and have been in proximity to others in some of which have been intimate environments. Maybe like church. 
And this is okay. Let me throw that out. This is okay. It's okay when you go to a church for the first time that is an intimate gathering that has a purpose for why it is gathered. If you come in and treat it a little bit like the public restroom, where you come in, you just want to check it out, you're, you've got a, a litany of things that you're trying to run that church through, objectives you're trying to figure out, and so you kind of come in, put your head down, you don't want to look at him in the eye and hope to not be noticed too much, right? Kind of incognito, want to check it out. And that's okay. Can I say that? Whether it be a church or some other organization, that's okay for a moment. It's just you came, and that's all right. You came. But you didn't necessarily gather. And the point to our discussion today is to talk about why we at the fellowship gather. Why are we trying to develop people who gather regularly? Corporate gathering is for a corporate goal, purpose. Not, it, it is to strengthen the individual change. It's to challenge the individual so that those in the body, the corporate gathering, the weakest, even the weakest, become stronger to better affect the whole. We can be proximate, still never gather. Gathering holds a premise that we are aligning or assembling for one singular purpose. And the reason I want to take us through Hebrews 10 through this next three weeks, and we're going to look at it specifically today, is because Jesus was the reason that we have opportunity to gather. In fact, he was the first gathering. In his coming, he gathered us into himself. That's what we'll celebrate in our very next series about Advent. His coming gives us opportunity to gather, but that was not always the case. This letter was written to a group of people who had come out of Judaism, the people of God. They'd come out of a practice, a religious, a Semitic culture, and one that required sacrifices and law. Coming out of said culture, he's writing this letter in the vast majority, like, like two-thirds of the people he's writing to in this letter. And we don't know the author, by the way, so I'm just going to keep saying he. There's a lot of speculation, but whoever wrote the letter of Hebrews is writing with a reminder continually of why they gather and the purpose for which they gather and, and what gives them the opportunity to gather. It's a true blessing. Before this... They were a people that had to practice the law and go through regular sacrifice daily. Leviticus required that blood atonement was necessary for sin offering. And it happened once a year at Yom Kippur. There was a whole practice where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And if he himself was impure in any facet, he'd be struck there in the, dead there in the presence of God. And no one was going in after him. They'd tie a rope around his ankle and pull him out. But he was the hope. He was the hope that he would go in as pure as possible ceremonially and spiritually and he would go in and offer sacrifice for the people so that for one year they knew that if you were guilty of the law, one portion, you were guilty of the entire thing. Everyone every year annually, guess what, was guilty of what? The whole thing. And so they counted on a priest, they counted on someone to go between them to God to to offer sacrifice of blood to atone for their sin to cover it, that they might have one annual year of relief from the bondage of their own sin, that it could be forgiven. And the Hebrews author is writing to say that in Jesus, all of that changed. And we're going to talk about it. So in Hebrews 10, I'm going to ask you to stand if you can. 
I'm going to read just verses 19 through 25, and we'll get to some other verses as we go. But Hebrews 10 says this. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance of what faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. This morning, Father, as we open your word, and we seek to put our eyes on Jesus, and we look at the scriptural instruction here inspired by your spirit. I pray that we would learn from your vantage point how we can gather in Jesus alone and why we gather. It is in the worship and that we would walk in a new and living way in Jesus alone. But God, that we would need to spur one another on, much like this author's writing, to remind this audience that was prone to go backwards. Father, I pray that we would spur one another on today. And I pray your spirit would begin to spur our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, so two-thirds of those that he's writing to in this letter are going to struggle and go backwards towards the practice of Judaism. In fact, what's going to happen is they're going to begin to practice again for themselves the sacrifices and the law because they're going to lose hope in what Jesus did once and for all for us. Now, remember, here it says that, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. What it's talking about is he's saying there, there is a problem. And we, we cannot save ourselves. That problem that we kept trying to fix because the law required a blood atonement could never be fixed by any blood here on the planet in a natural sense. No animal or human would be pure enough to fix it all, because, to set right for all humanity once and for all what had, been, what had been set awry. That God had to come himself, so the Father sent Jesus. And so the first point today is this, Christ came to gather us to himself. The advent is the first gathering. We gather because Jesus enables us to. Without him, there is no gathering of the church. Because without him, we're still individually trying to seek how we can just not only offend, but appease a God that we, we broke his law, that we were tainted towards, that, we, that sin put a barrier in our own individual lives towards. So we could never fix that apart from him. I'm going to read a little further into Hebrews if it's okay. Hebrews 10.1, it says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year 
make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, if it could fix it, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of our sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scrolls. I have come to do your will, O God. Because the law was a shadow of things to come. The law was never a problem, and the sacrifices prescribed in Leviticus were not the problem. They were there intentionally so that the people of God would get into a rhythm and a recognition of their own sin and that they needed, they needed help. They needed a savior. It was there as a picture, but they knew it was promised. There would one day come a Messiah that would fix and write it all. There was one day a Messiah who would come who would give his life as a once and for all atonement for the people. And he's trying to remind them that was Jesus. And so you can't continue to place your faith in Jesus and simultaneously practice as a hope, kind of like, uh, if, in case we missed it, here's our safety net, continue to practice through priests. And so he's talking to a people who are heavily religious, but incredibly undergospeled. Let me say that again. Because I think that needs to be said here in the South, in the buckle of what we call the Bible Belt. He's talking to an incredibly religious and churched people who are incredibly under-gospeled and have placed a lot of their faith in their rituals, in their practices, and rather than in Jesus. The priests would offer annually sacrifice for the people, but it was never ultimately going to abolish sin. Jesus did. He had come under the will of the Father. And I love what Jesus said here. You, in the sacrifices and offerings, you could not be sufficed. You could not be pleased eternally. Ultimately, you had a plan. And because you had a plan, you gave me a body. I need you to write this down so you can think on it remember it. The Father gave Jesus a body solely that it would be broken. Jesus was given blood solely so that it would be spilled for you and for me. The garden prayer, this was the only way. How many of you remember Jesus' prayer in the garden, Matthew 27, or sorry, Matthew 28, and he says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there be any other way, but since it's not, and I want to say the thing that I believe that broke the heart of Jesus as he was anticipating the cross, as he was anticipating separation from the Father. Listen, for the first time in eternity, what do we know him to be? I am. I was, I am, and I will be. That means that I have always been. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So anyone who is in me is in the Father. What he's saying is we've always been united. We've never had a point of separation until the cross. We've never 
had a place where there was a fabric ripped between you and I until the cross and that three days of separation. And that drove Jesus to the place of sweating drops of blood. It brought such angst. He knew the love of the Father so closely, so intimately that he sweat drops of blood because he was terrified about missing and being separate from the Father. But he gladly did it to open a new and living way for us through the curtain that is his body. He was given a body so it could be broken. He was given his blood so it could be spilled. You know, we often practice two ordinances here in the church. And today I want to, I want to, I want to look at what this passage reminds us of. It hints at the ordinance of communion. And I want to say that it's really important that we practice it here regularly. I want to say why we practice it regularly. In fact, in the, in the early church, the reason the Hebrews author had to write to remind them, do not go back. Do not Get out of the practice of trusting in him. Do not get, in the practice, get out of the practice of gathering to spur one another on in the hope you have. Don't tempt each other to go back to your old practices. Why? The reason they were tempted is because they would gather weekly. And, and next week, Bob may not be here. They were under heavy persecution that was leading to death. And they didn't know if they'd see each other again. So they were afraid and had gotten out of the the tendency to gather. Why? Because they didn't want to be fish in a barrel. So they're like, I can just focus on my individual need. I can focus on individually save myself by not gathering at the whole, and maybe I can make it to next week. And what are we, what were we told when he said, you come to my table, you do this what? In remembrance, in remembrance of me. You can't do in remembrance what you have not accepted before. Like the action has already taken place. There was one time on the cross, one time to resurrect. One time as an atonement and remission for sin. So he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. And for those in this body he's writing to that had accepted that, that had trusted that, he's going, I'm not coming back to do that again. And in fact, I'm not taking this, this cracker that is symbolic and represents my body. I'm not inhabiting that. That's already been done. This is simply a symbol of what took place so that you and I can remember it. So that we can remember that he was given a body that would be broken. And the juice, the wine, this represents his blood that atones for us. It's not that his blood magically or supernaturally becomes that wine again. He doesn't re-inhabit it. It's already taken place. Thus, you know that we can remember it. We're not re-engaging or reactivating it. It is a remembrance, a place of remembrance. And he says, if my body that was broken for you, and if my blood that was given to me so it could be shed for you could atone for your sin for all time, then you never have to worry about offering or sacrifice or blood sacrifice again. You are free. And your conscience thereof free. But when you come here to this table, which they were in the practice of doing every week regularly, why? To remind them that they were free. They did it regularly so they'd remind themselves to not go backwards but to look ahead. Remember what had been done so that you could move forward. You have a new reason for gathering. It is in him. It's to worship him and to walk in a completely new way. 
And it's to spur one another on to keep doing that. And so when we come to this table, it is solely to practice the symbolism of what happened so that we could have life. But I want to encourage you, I think it's more than that. I think it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge that he said, you cannot be my disciples unless you daily take up your cross and follow me. So if we come to the table and we just go, thank you, I don't think that's reverent enough. When we come to the table, he said, you can't be my disciple unless you daily crucify your desires and your wants and your will, just like I asked my son who I gave so that you could have this opportunity. I want you to be just like him. I want you to be willing to crucify your desires, your wants, and make it about my will, not your own. I don't want you to come with an agenda. I want you to come willing to lean and become molded in my agenda. Hello? So when you come and you take that body that was broken just like his and you do it in remembrance of him and you want to be like him, kind of like Paul was saying last in our last series, I want to know him and fellowship in his sufferings. If your body need be broken for the advance of the gospel in someone's life so that they can gather in Jesus' name, so be it. If your blood be spilled so that others might be have, have hope of gathering in Jesus' name because without it they don't know, so be it. It's an enlistment. In Acts 1.8, he said that they would be my martyrs for this, talking of the apostles. And so the gathering that he gave was intimate. Communion is literally defined. We call the Lord's Supper communion. It's defined as connection, fellowship, or relationship. Merriam-Webster actually takes it further and says this, it is the bread and wine consumed as memorials or in remembrance of Christ's death or as symbols for the realization of a spiritual union between quite... <sighs> I just became Daffy Duck. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> spiritual union between Christ and communicant. There's a new and living way that was opened through Jesus' blood, our curtain. What's incredibly important is that our second point, Christ came to split said curtain. In Matthew 27, it speaks of how Christ split the curtain. I want to read again from Hebrews, and then I'm going to go to Matthew 27 and kind of hint at that. But in verses 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. What that's referencing is the ability to come into the holy of holies behind the veil. See, there was, a, there was in the temple multiple levels. The people were not allowed to even go where priests could go, but the high priest could only go into the holy of holies, the most holy place. And he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. That's completely different. That's new to a people that have been raised that they could not go there. And only the high priest who was pure in, like, in intention and in ceremony could go in there. Otherwise, he'd, be, he'd die there in the presence of God trying to atone for the people. So we have confidence to enter the holy place. This is new. He says, by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way. Okay, in Matthew 27, upon the uh, countenance and the recall of the people, it says that Jesus on the cross saw the entire place go dark. 
It says, when Jesus breathed his last and offered of his spirit, it was noon and the entire place turned black. Earthquake happened. But all of that before the earth shook was preceded by something. And it says that the veil of the most high place, the holy of holies, was ripped from top to bottom, forever separating that, that barrier again, tearing it down entirely. And it's an interesting thought that they could even, those who were experts at the point, could tell that it had not been ripped from the bottom up. The thread, the fabric, the way it was ripped came from top to bottom, meaning God himself, because of the sacrifice that had been given in his son Jesus, the body that was given to him to be broken, the blood that was spilt, tore, God tore said veil himself so that there would be nothing to separate us from him again. God himself opened the door through his son, the curtain. Here's, here's what that means. The act of splitting said curtain removes the barrier that sin put up. Sin created a barrier that was established be, between us and God. Like because of our taintedness in, our, in the garden, our willingness to only worship ourselves and not honor him, it put up a barrier. How many of you have noticed that when you are selfish, you put up barriers between you and other people? When you make decisions for yourself, other people get hurt. That's what happened in the garden. But here's the point. That barrier was broken by love. What went up because of sin was torn down because of love. An unconditional love, one so willing to give himself completely the greatest act of love that we would have that veil open and forever open to us no longer no longer a staple or a barrier, no longer a problem for those who are in Christ Jesus who receive the gift of atonement in Christ Jesus. We have complete access to him by our faith. Complete access to the Father, never denied again. And this is what's interesting. For those of you who have Jewish friends, I want to encourage you. This is something to think on. I think it incredibly difficult to be a biblical Jew today. By 70 AD, the temple that held the Holy of Holies, the most high place, was torn down, never to be rebuilt. Thus, the Holy of Holies destroyed. Thus, removing the need for a high priest. There hasn't been one since that time. Thus, removing the ability for true Yom Kippur, blood sacrifice once annually behind the veil upon the altar, upon in the Holy of Holies, where there is no temple, where there is no Holy of Holies, where there is no high priest, Jesus has become all those things. And they just need to be aware of it so they can gather. He did it so that they could gather. But without that knowledge, without the people who have that knowledge that know that, live that, and are willing to have the sin barrier torn down by their own love, his love in their lives, they'll continue to seek, they'll continue to desire to do whatever they can by sacrifice to earn a right that they already have. Christ's perfect sacrifice of himself shed his perfect blood to perfectly atone for sin. He's the only one that could do it. There is no temporal professional priest necessary any longer, and there isn't one that exists, not scripturally. 
It's no longer in place. I wonder why that is no longer in place. We have access because of him. We have access to him. And others should have access to us because they have access to him in us. Christ came to cleanse our conscience. Verses 21 to 23 Hebrews says this. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, full assurance of what faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying here is this. He's reminding them. Again, there was no blood by an animal or by a human from this tainted world that could save us for all time. It had to be supernatural blood, so God came himself. We could not save ourselves. His perfect blood sprinkles our conscience and covers our lives like fresh water, washing us white as snow. Leviticus required blood sacrifice. That's true. He's telling him, I get it. But blood from this world is tainted with sin and its effect could never account for all time. It was always a shadow, it was always a symbol, and it was only temporal. Like everything in our immediate and tangible lives is ending, so was that, and he ended it. I wanna use a quote that I love by Dallas Willard. It's not gonna be on the screen, I just want you to hear it. God has never been opposed to your effort. He is opposed to earning. It was never our design or plan to have Christ come and save us. That was God's. And so all we can do, we can't take credit for it. We can't even point too much homage to it. All we can do is receive it and trust it and walk in it. How many of you have ever been given a gift that you did not deserve, like tangibly, like on Christmas, like outside of the gospel, because that's obvious, but... How many of you have ever been given a gift that you were like, I didn't ask for this, I didn't deserve this, this is way out of the bounds of what I thought I was getting. This is this so price, so, such a pricey gift, I didn't think anyone was going to save for me like this. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And you were humbled by that generosity. Here's what he's saying. We're not earning anything religiously by showing up and going through these practices and these rituals. We're not earning anything. We're not earning what was already freely given in the love of Christ and salvation. We can't earn it anymore. We can't make him love us anymore. We can't make him hate us anymore. You go, but I've walked that prodigal road. You can't make him love you any less. Can I say that? Do you trust that? You cannot earn anything by just showing up and being proximate and doing intimate things to try to appease a God who already loves you and gave himself for you. He just wants you to receive the invitation and walk in it. He says, this is why you gather and this is for the purpose of your gathering, that you would worship me with all that you are, first and greatest commandment, and that you would recognize that I have a new way for you. You don't have to go back to carrying the heavy weight of the law. You don't have to continue to try to worship yourself. In fact, the more you relinquish yourself, the more selfless you become, the more like me you become, and that's what you're here to do. You're here to exercise the love that freed you amongst one another and out to a world that needs to be loved. He's saying we're not earning his love or salvation by gathering. 
It didn't make us closer to, it didn't earn a check by showing up here. Does that make sense? We're not just checking something off like going to the restroom. We're not just doing something we, and not doing another. We have to give effort to learn and know who he is, to experience more of him, that we would practice said love as proof of our salvation, not to earn it. Proof that he loved us so much that he gave himself and we in turn would give ourselves to others because we love him and we love them just like he did for us. Less of me, more of him were the words of John the Baptist. Proverbs 19, 29, 18 says it like this. Sorry. That where there is no prophetic vision, the ESV says, where there's no vision, the people perish, or where they cast off restraint, or the people scatter, it says, where there is no vision. That's why we're talking about this mission statement. He said, less of me, more of him. When John the Baptist and John 1, who was the cousin of Jesus, preceded him by six months. When he had seen the dove of God, the spirit of God ascend on Jesus like a, like a dove. And that was his affirmation that this was the Messiah. And he calls out in the marketplace, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his disciples immediately leave him to follow Jesus. That's what John was trying to do. He wasn't trying to make disciples of himself. He was trying to point them to Jesus and his love. Now, I want to bring our mission statement back up for a second. I want you to read for yourself what it says. It says, doing whatever it takes. It does not say, doing whatever I like. And it doesn't say, whatever I want. Because the truth is, if we all do what we like and we all do what we want, we're not gathering. Not scripturally. And if we all just do what we want, you can imagine, I can do what I want. Here's an arrow going this way. You can do what you want. Here's an arrow going that way. You do what you want. There's an arrow going that way. And we're all going in different directions, though. We're, we're, we're proximate. We're not gathering. We're scattering. And he says, where there's no singular prophetic vision, the people will cast off restraint. They're going to scatter. They're going to die out here. Because they are intimately and proximately in in relationship to one another, but they are not gathering for a singular purpose. They're not moving forward. So not whatever I like or whatever I want, it's whatever it takes. And again, let me remind you, the garden prayer of Jesus was, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Not once, but three different times Jesus prayed, not what I want, Father. If there be any other way, let's do that. I don't want to be separate from you. I know how good it is to be in your care, in relationship to you, but it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. So not my will, yours be done. Christ did this so he could gather us to each other. Verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. He's saying it's urgent. It is urgent your gathering. 
And he's saying you need to do it, but we have to recognize one thing. We have to consider our challenge of one another. You say, why? Because how many of you recognize yourself and your own tendencies to go back to your old way? How many of you recognize your own selfish tendencies? And we just admitted that when I'm selfish, I hurt others. So he says the point of gathering is to walk in this new way. It's to worship him who gave you a chance to gather and to walk in this new way. You're not going to do that naturally. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. You're going to spur one another on. How many of you know that it's hard out here and it's heavy? He goes, when it's heavy, you've got to come alongside and minister to one another and lift each other's arms like Aaron and Hur lifted Moses' arms as they went out against the, the Amalekites in Exodus 17. And when he started to get heavy, as his hands were up holding the banner over the people, Joshua was successful against the Amalekites, victory for the people of God. But when his hands started to fall, because life is heavy and we're physically limited, he had to have his brothers come alongside and lift those arms so that they together with one uniform purpose could be successful. We're here to lift each other's arms. That's what it means to spur one another on. That's one port, part, one, one portion of what it means to spur one another on. The, the second you're probably more familiar, familiar with, and that is in Proverbs 29, it says that we are, as iron sharpens iron, so are you to sharpen one another. Sorry, Proverbs 17, 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, are you to sharpen one another? That means, how many of you have seen iron grind against gr iron, like ever sharpened a knife before? What happens? Sparks. Because that which is dull starts to come off. That which is fleshly begins to fall off. And it's not a, a non-painful process. It doesn't feel great. But when you're putting yourself aside, like he said, you can't be my disciple unless you put yourself aside. Take up your cross and your desires and put them aside. It's going to be painful, but you're going to look more like me. So we exist together to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We exist to not only lift each other's arms, but we exist to challenge one another and to challenge the selfishness in one another and to gain the right to speak into one another's lives so that we can be honest with one another. And here's the thing. You may be proximate to people in an intimate gathering, even do intimate things, but maybe you've never earned the right to speak like that into someone's life. And maybe you've never given someone else because you don't know them enough and you don't trust them enough to give license for them to speak into yours. And when we don't do that, we keep barriers up that keep us from looking like him and keep us from actually gathering, as the Bible says. Hello? You say, Justin, that one's kind of tough. I don't like that one. They, they stopped gathering. He said, do not get in the habit of others of like forgetting to, to gather or just choosing to not gather. He said, don't do that. They were doing it to save their own skin, to save their lives. In this day of heavy persecution, maybe we would have. They were doing it so they wouldn't be fishing a barrel. But here's the reason we don't. We, get, we let fear get the best of us. We have a tendency to let fear get the better of us and we have a tendency to get lied to. We have a tendency to believe that my stuff's too heavy for someone else. 
We have a tendency to think that I'm not valuable, so I'm just going to pull everyone down. We, have a th- uh, we, have, we lie to ourselves. We have a belief that we're smarter than everyone else in the room, so I don't need to show up. They're all dumb. I already know this. You know what I'm saying? No one? Okay, just me. Do not aid in the enemy's isolating of you. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. When Moses lifted his arms because Aaron and Hur needed to support him, there was a clear and present enemy. It was the Amalekites in their physical realm. Their spiritual enemy hadn't changed, though. It was the enemy, Satan, devil, same. We fight said same enemy, and we do not battle in flesh and blood, but what? We fight principalities of what? The dark in a spiritual realm. So we have to have each other. We have to gather in the name of Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus, and to spur one another on to love like Jesus and have the deeds of Jesus so that others might have hope. That's why we gather. And I'm not going to do it naturally. I'm selfish. I have flesh that has to come off. And I need people in my life that will speak honestly into my life because I've allowed you to speak honestly into my life to challenge the flesh that exists in me. When I'm selfish, people get hurt. So I need to be selfless. When life gets heavy, I need a church that lifts my arms because I'm not in this alone. Whatever it takes. And sometimes it's not fun, but it's not whatever I want or whatever I like. So the question I have this morning is this, how are you spurring each other on? Are you spurning others on? Are we at the fellowship truly gathering under the intention that we said this is why we exist? We exist to gather. Are we truly gathering, lifting others' arms and sharpening one another? This morning, I need you to evaluate why you're here. Are you in Christ and gathering because he's allowed you to? Are you open to others? Are you speaking honestly to others? Are you lifting others' arms? Are we being the church that Jesus died for so that we could gather as his church? Father, this morning I just ask that we, as we evaluate these things, would answer with truth and allow you to minister to us by your spirit as you reveal said truth to us. Speak clearly, I pray, to us right now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name.